Seahawks fans wherever you may be. Welcome back for another edition of the Seahawks Playbook Podcast. Join your host, Bill Alpstead, and co-host, sports writer and football analyst, Keith Myers, as we talk Seahawks football. Seahawks fans, welcome to the Seahawks Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Alvstead, here with Keith Myers. We're here to talk Seahawks football, training camp, storylines, all that good stuff. Welcome into the show, Keith. Good to have you again. Yeah, it's um, we're there's practices. We're actually watching football. Um, sometimes during the offseason, it feels like we're never going to get here, but here we are. True, right? I mean, this whole process lasts six months, and um, you know, we don't treat it really anything different it's like there's always something fun for us but for listeners it's like people kind of check out for a while you know sometimes that's what you need to do to kind of recoup after a season and you come back this time of the year and you're all kind of fired up so um it's a good time to to get back and jump into it when uh, all the players end up walking into camp the energy level is up fans are back at uh, on the berm and um it's a great time to be a fan and, and a seahawk fan so Keith and I are going to talk some football today. We've got news in the NFC West that we wanted to talk about. We've got some storylines specific to training camp and uh, some Jamal Adams contract stuff, and we'll try to put it all together for you. So um, what's going on in the NFC West that we're trying to pay attention to a little bit that might have a big impact on the team this year? Well, the biggest thing is that the Rams, who are probably the one the, the biggest competition that the Seahawks have for the division uh, just lost a huge piece of their offense. Um, their running back, uh, Cam Akers, is out, torn Achilles, he'll miss the entire year. And, uh, you know, that's a big deal. So, you know, we're looking at, um, at they're going to be scrambling, trying to figure out what to do with that portion of their offense because last year they had like a three-headed monster, right? They had... Um, Three guys in the position. Akers started out the year as the third um, guy in that, worked his way up the depth chart. By the end, he was the starter. He was getting the lion's share that carries. He's the more talented back, but he was a rookie, and they brought him along slowly, which was probably the right thing for them to do. Um, you know, one of their running backs left. I think he's in Miami now. The other one, you know, is now got a torn Achilles. So they're really left with Henderson as their only back, and he's not a guy that is built to run between the tackles. He excelled in that by committee uh, approach because it allowed them to use him where he's effective and not ask him to do everything. And suddenly he, ha- he has to do everything. So it is definitely yeah, I, worth watching. Yeah. I think that they're going to go out and probably acquire, you know, a few players, bring a young couple of young guys, undrafted guys into camp for competition, take some, some workload. And then it wouldn't surprise me if a guy like um, Adrian Peterson, who's still available out there, who's waiting for an opportunity, wants to go to a Super Bowl contender, um, would come in and and try to help them, at least maybe give them, you know, 100 to, to 150 carries in a season, pick up 500 yards, you know, a few touchdowns, and it would help that running back room, I think, having a veteran presence like that. It's not like I want them to be successful at doing this. I just think that that's probably what they would try to do. Or Frank Gore, who's completely ancient right now, he's got petrified wood for like feet, but he can still move 
Um, and, and it's a remarkable career for, for Frank Gore, 18 years, if he would to play this year, um, he would be the oldest running back back in the history of the NFL to ever have a carry in a game. If he, if he played, and I think that you could pick those guys up for minimum, you know, Mm -hmm. and I would expect them to at least have one guy like that in camp too. So you're right. That's a huge impact for the NFC West in total because the Rams were going to be right up there. Everyone's kind of saying they're the best team in the division. I'm eh, kind of questioning that. I think the Seahawks are right up there as well. And um, and the 49ers, of course. We'll see what happens there. But yeah, it's this hard, injury is huge. It's hard for them to compete huge. with their quarterback situation. That's why I don't, I, I don't consider them up there with the Seahawks yeah, and Rams. But, you but, know, you at the same time, Keith, uh, Garoppolo did take him to a Super Bowl as just a, a a game manager. That's true. I mean, the rest of the roster is not as good as it was that year, but um, but he, you're right. They did get there with with him managing games. I just don't. He has shown in his time in San Francisco that he's not he's not a franchise. Well, he's not going to go win games for you. Yeah, that's their their thing. But what if they made it through Week Eight with Garoppolo made the switch? and transitioned and, and Lance came on. I don't know. I think it, it might be one of those wasted years um, yeah. just to get their quarterback developed a little bit, and see, but we'll see. I mean, that's one of the things that if you look back to 2012, that's what the Seahawks did is, you know, they had, they brought Russell Wilson along and the first six games were really rough and they were, they were tough, but they got him acclimated to the NFL so that in 2013, they could go win a Super Bowl And, I don't think so. The 49ers roster is not as good as it was when they when when they were in the Super Bowl with Garoppolo. Um, so, and I don't think you're, they're getting there with a game manager this year. But they've got Lance, who has this incredibly high ceiling and could be a great player. They've got to get him in and get him uh, acclimated to the NFL, and then they can make a run next year. They're going to be really dangerous once they get him up to speed. Yeah, when you get that young quarterback and a really good roster, and you, and a good coach. I mean, he really is a good coach. Oh, absolutely. Um, we, yeah, we'll have to definitely pay attention again. Um, Cardinals, just a little brief news: Chandler Jones holding out, wants a new contract, um, is open to being traded. So that issue could be a development for them. They were going to be right on the cusp anyway, kind of a nine-win team that could go to ten or eleven. Could also fall just slightly. And uh, Chandler Jones, I don't know. It's tough because he missed some time last year as well. But they, it just seems like they have just somewhat of a incomplete roster. But it's it's really close. Like I don't think that you could discount them. And on any given Sunday, as as they say, uh, they could go steal a few games. So it's something to pay attention to. Well, I mean, and then they've got their quarterback who um, is a budding star and. Anytime you got a quarterback, you're dangerous. But you know their their defense has holes. Their offensive line's weak. Um, their defense has holes, and then you're going to take their best defensive player off the off the roster. That that could be painful. Um, he's open to be traded. I don't think he'll get traded. I think they'll work it out. But yeah, I mean they just went and signed uh, JJ Watt in order to. Um, try and give take some pressure off of Jones and, and have someone else take some double teams and, and allow him to be even more uh, dominant. And now that's 
kind of in jeopardy. And we'll have to see where that one goes. So let's get to the Seahawks. Um, a few things of note, and we'll get into kind of a little Jamal Adams conversation. Um, Seahawks worked out quarterback, Oregon State alum, Sean Mannion, uh, this past weekend. Vikings back up in 2019 and 20. He's just a placeholder guy. Um, I would imagine it's a hedge thing against maybe a Smith injury, something like that. Nobody's going to supplant um, Smith as a backup quarterback. Yeah, Gino's not going at this anywhere. point, right? I mean, so it's just a, a guy to kind of take some snaps in camp, but he's not signed or anything. They just brought him in. I just thought it was interesting um, that they continued to kind of look at all positions. Well, I mean, you look at that, and they. You've got uh, a couple of guys, uh, Magoo and uh, Danny Etling, who are, you know, below Geno Smith. And they like to have an extra an arm or two just so that the veterans aren't having to make all the throws all day in camp um, and just, you know, give them a little bit of a break and, and that kind of stuff. They have those guys. But I think from what we've seen, Etling's not an NFL like quarterback. He's a guy that is a camp body. And so there, if you can upgrade from a camp body to a potential backup, um, I think you do that. Uh, Mannion could be that. I think Mannion was one of those guys that coming out of college, you looked at him and you go, there could be something there. Totally. He had a great senior campaign in college and he ended up going in the third round to the Rams in 2015, yeah. but he's only started two games in the NFL since then. And those were injury starts. Yeah. And that's the thing. So he's a guy that, you know, coming out of the draft there, there were, you could see there, there was something there. There was talent. Um, there was a pretty high ceiling, but there was also a fairly low floor. And one of the things that we've now gotten in five years of, of, of Mannion in the NFL is that he's a career backup at best. He's not a guy that's going to come in and, and wow anyone and, and win a starting job anywhere. So he's just looking for a job. Yeah. And if, if Geno Smith were to get hurt in camp, and they needed someone. Are you going to run with with Magoo as your backup um, in a year that you're hoping to make the Super Bowl, or do you want someone with a little bit more um, experience? A guy that can get you through two or three games. Yeah, a guy, you know, a guy that can, you needed. a guy that you know can manage, you know, can be a game manager for a game or two, and um, you know, get you through a game, and and hopefully, you know, give your team a, a chance to win. Not that they're going to go out and win it. Um, but so, so let me ask you this. Do you think that Jared Goff is a glorified game manager type quarterback? Take the word glorified off. He's well, I think that he's viewed by some as more than just a game manager. Why? I don't know. He had, but don't you get that sense that, that he's viewed that way in some circles? In some circles, I think he is viewed that way. I mean, that's why the, the lions went and got him. Um, they were, it wasn't just that they were, you know, trading Stafford. They wanted Goff um, because he had a year a couple of years ago where he put up some good stats. And and there is some, you know, when coming out of college, he was viewed as a, as a um, you know, a guy with a ton of potential and a, and a potential star. And it just never has developed. And he's, he can't throw the ball downfield. Right. Um, so the so, reason for my question, though, is kind of going back to the Seahawks. Can we win with a game manager type quarterback in in Shane Waldron's offense? And I was just thinking, yeah, we probably could. Yeah. I mean, the, the rest of the roster is pretty decent. Yeah. And if you take the long 
ball game out of it were just essentially the Rams offense with a game manager. And so, it, you know, we could probably still win some games, I would think. No, that's a good point. Is even, I mean, if the um, offense isn't going to be exactly what the, the Rams offense was, but it is, there's going to be a ton of similarities. And if you can win with Jared Goff in with the Rams, then you can win with Geno Smith, Geno Smith. Um, and the Seahawks. Now, you're not winning a Super Bowl that way, but you can win games, and that's all. You could get to 500. Yeah, and if you plus. and if if Wilson misses a couple of games, and you can, um, you know, go one and one, or you know, something during his absence, and just kind of hold serve and 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 exactly get yourself to where you know you can get your star quarterback back. Fine, that's great. Go for it. Um, and that's why the team keeps bringing Geno Smith back. Is because he's that he is that guy. He's the the game manager who can, you know, hold you know hold the ship down and while we wait for Wilson to get healthy. So a personnel move, too. Actually, uh, Seahawks waived uh, Savion Smith, cornerback, to make room for a signature of a wide receiver, uh, Darius Robertson um, from Wayne State, is in Cardinals minicamp this off season, but they released him about a month after he made his first appearance with them. He's a real small guy, but he's speedy five, 970 pounds. He also does uh, kick returns and punt returns. So there's a specific reason why a guy like that comes into camp. I mean, they're looking for a guy like Eskridge basically not mm-hmm. that Eskridge is out. We'll talk about that in a second of, of mini camp first, first days here. Um, but a guy like this comes in to fill that role in camp because the Seahawks still want to be able to run those plays and have a guy, you know, take on some of those routes um, to, to, to pretend that he's Eskridge's essentially. I mean, he doesn't really have a chance, I don't think, to make a roster, but no, um, he's, he's a camp body. But yeah, he's a, he's a camp body who's in the Eskridge mold so they can practice the, practice the plays that they're installing specifically for Eskridge while... Eskridge is sidelined. Yeah, um, so let's talk about injuries a little bit. Okay. So we have a couple of players, a handful, that did not make appearances in the um, first practice, and yep. a couple of those are maybe longer than, well, than others. There were three um, players that they put that they dealt with as far as putting on, on official lists. So you've got Dwayne Eskridge and Travis Homer, who were put on the physically unable to perform list. You know, they're both... Uh, so what's homework got? Um, Do you know? I did. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, Eskridge has a toe. So yeah. Pete Carroll came out and said he's got a toe he's been dealing with since um, after the draft, like in mini camp. So it's been hanging around since the end of May and through June. And they're just bringing him along slow because he hasn't had a chance mm-hmm. to really work out um, and be in shape, top shape. So they're going to bring him along and. He said it would probably be a week to two weeks before he would be fully 100%. Yeah, with Homer, it's a uh, calf injury that's been lingering. Um, so those two guys are on the physically unable to perform list. What that means is that they're eligible for the physically unable to perform list. Um, if for some reason they are still not healthy when the rosters are set, um, in you know before week one, they can be placed on, on the pup list instead of injured reserve. Um, the, they can also be taken off that list at any time right now. It's not like, uh, the in season pup list where you have to miss six games at this point, 
they can be taken off tomorrow if, and, and activated. So it's not a thing. Um, yeah. And then the rookie guard center, um, Pierre Olivier Lestage. There you go. Did I get You've it? worked on that, Keith. I have actually. I was I was making <laughs> sure that I had it um, before we, we opened. Um, and so he is was placed on the the non-football injury list he actually um had a sports hernia when he came to seattle he practiced with it um during you know the june camps and whatnot really fought through it and was able to make an impact and and make an impression on the coaches despite fighting through the the injury and the pain um and which is actually you know kind of good and then they were like you know what let's just get it fixed now and he, so he'll be, he may, you know, be, uh, he's shut down for the season. I mean, even if he's ready in September, October, he won't have any practice. He's a rookie. He's probably going to be on that. Well, they can get it. They can actually, um, yeah. So that was in June. He's not going to be, it's, it's six weeks from when it, they have it. So we're, we're talking mid August probably before they get him on the field. He, he may get a couple of practices, or, you know, a couple of weeks of practice before rosters are set, but he's probably not making it um, onto the the roster, but he'll, he'll make it onto the practice squad and right. then, um, be able to be called up when he's ready. And so he'll get his, his practice time, but it's not like he'll, he'll, he would just be done. And that's what they meant. They wanted to get it done in, in June because if they'd waited and now, and it didn't get better and he was going to need it. And then they were shutting him down, you know, now or, closer to week one, then he would, his rookie year's gone. And so doing it this way, he'll be back before training camp's over. Um, two injuries of note beyond that. Uh, Ethan Postick has a little hammy, mm-hmm. which allowed um, Kyle Fuller, the backup center, to have all the starter reps on the first day. Um, bad for Postick, good for Fuller. Although it's not a serious thing. It's just one of those things they held him out for. And then Jamal Adams. Jamal Adams in the offseason, just as a reminder, uh, we all saw how hard Jamal Adams plays football, and we saw him basically playing with half an arm on in one game towards towards the end there, and, and some thumbs, and his fingers were completely broken, and um, so he had offseason surgery on I think his thumb, both thumbs and both shoulders, uh, which is crazy. I mean, just that alone, that rehab is probably eight weeks to to ten weeks, and and before you can really start to kind of work out again. And so they held him out. He, uh, Pete Carroll said it wasn't because of the contract. It was just because they were kind of going to bring him along slow anyway. Um, so that leads me to, to kind of a, the, the, the first question. I mean, we've got a lot of topics to talk about. We might as well talk about Jamal Adams right up front, just a, a contract kind of a discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris Clough uh, on Twitter uh, talked about the Jamal Adams contract and things sound optimistic, but he was just kind of wondering. And so I, I tweeted back to him. I, I thought that Jamal Adams would sign in the second day of camp. And I gave him a number of like 68 million over four years with uh, 40 million guaranteed. So that was like a 17 APY. I thought that would get it done for both sides. Um, you know, it had mixed reaction. That, that had mixed reactions. Um, some folks agree kind of that's where it's going to be. Others are, you know, that's a little high, uh, maybe too much guaranteed money. What do you think, Keith? I think that's about right. Um, you know, four years money in that in that range. He's young. People got to remember he's young. Uh, yes, he came over from the Jets. He was a veteran. He was already an All Pro. 
Um, so people just assume, oh, you know, he's probably 28, 29. No, he's 26. He's young. Four years um, for him uh, is... is To make him the top safety. Yeah. Paid, paid safety in the NFL. So you find a way to make... You end up making him the top safety in the NFL, and then you... Um, and you do so in a way that isn't like crushing the team as far as, um, you know, cap ramifications and all of that. And then you kind of push some of the money out into the future where the cap's going to explode again. And so I, I just think that it works. One of the things, you know, Pete Carroll came out and said that he was, um, that, that they were close, um, that, that yeah. they were getting, they were, um, you know, that everything's in a good place is what he said. And that it's going to get done. Anybody just said, we're going to get take care of it here soon, right. very which, soon. Which, yeah, which tells me that it's within a million dollars. Yeah, it's like they're really close. They're, they're just hammering some details out on on small little uh, guaranteed things having to do with Pro Bowls and yeah, uh, workout bonuses and you know uh, when the roster uh, officially uh, starts at the end of the uh, at the end of the year and before the NFL season how many days it takes for, for every guarantee to be put in place. Yeah. I mean, those sorts of details just take a little bit of time. Yeah. So they're, that's, that's, that's perfect. I mean, I think that they've, they've agreed to, to the majority of the stuff enough that um, Adams's agent is like, yeah, go ahead and, you know, don't hold out, go, go in and, and practice and get yourself um, in there with the team because this will be done here in the next day or two. Uh, and it's, it's, it is. It's little stuff like that. If they were still, you know, a couple million dollars off per year, or you know, ten million off on, on right. with the guaranteed money, seeing Jamal Adams hold out. Yeah, you know, he wouldn't be in camp publicly saying, you know, I might as well get traded because, yeah, he yeah. would be putting maximum pressure on on the team. Yeah, he would, He's not he would be doing point. what Chandler Jones is doing. <laughs> um, and so yes, exactly, but instead he's there. Um, he's not practicing. Um, but you got to remember he had finger and shoulder surgery, um, multiple. What do you think about the, the contract situation with Seattle possibly doing as much as 40 million? I, I, that's just a guess for me, but it's going to be between 30 and 40 million, I would assume. And the way that he plays, like he plays a brutal brand of football and he's not a huge guy, but he plays like it. So do you think that that has an impact on the way the Seahawks view him? No, because, as far as because he's his young. Ability to stay on the field. He, one, he's young, and two, he showed last year he'll play through it and deal with the um, stuff in the offseason. He's not a guy that's going to miss a lot of time, um, and so I, I don't think they care. Um, if he was thirty and was missing, you know time and, and dealing with all these injuries every year and that I think they would care, but at 26, no. Nah. All right. So let's talk about some of the things that, that you want to talk about, Keith, what are you seeing uh, in camp as some storylines that you're kind of paying attention to and um, that might have a, a great impact on how this kind of unfolds in the next three to four weeks? Well, one of the things that I'm really watching is, uh, the situation at defensive end slash outside linebacker, because there's a lot of overlap there. Um, and we were kind of wondering what was going to happen with Alden Smith and would he even make it to training camp? Well, you know what he reported? He's out there practicing. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, he, now he, he, he has to factor into the equation, uh, which we never, we never committed to factoring him into the equation because we yeah. always kind of assumed that um, there was a chance that all of the, his legal off field stuff would, would, you know, become bad enough that the team would just let him go. And, or he, I don't think that, that that equation has actually changed. I mean, what, what I understand happened, Keith, is that in the off season in, in mini camps and so forth, that the team felt like he was out of shape and didn't want to bring him in and, you know, throw him into the mix um, in that sort of a situation. Plus the legal stuff may have been a factor, but the same legal stuff that was legal stuff then is still a factor right now. But he's he went back and he worked out and he came into camp completely in shape. So he's on the field, but he still has that arraignment scheduled for August 24th that is going to really dictate, it could possibly dictate um, if he plays this year or not. Um, if the team elects to keep him, depending on the information that might come out publicly about the, the situation. So it's something to monitor, mm-hmm. but man, am I excited about having a guy like that on the team because here's a guy that has a real opportunity to um, be a rotational uh, guy at the SAM or on the edge that can really impact a game. Mm-hmm. At any given moment, we saw what Dallas did against Seattle when Russell Wilson played, and he was a big, huge part of, of that disruption. I think that... Um a lot of people will look at Smith and you, when he was in San Francisco, he was a dominant player. Um, and then all of his off field stuff happened and he was out of the league, came back to Dallas last year. And then when, when Dallas let him go at the end of the season and they were, he was on a one year deal and they were like, yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to bring him back. Everyone goes, well, he must not have much in the tank. Um, and then they looked, you know, he only had four and a half sacks. And this is a guy that, almost hit 20, um, you know, when he was in San Francisco. And so it was like, maybe, yeah, maybe he just doesn't have anything left. But what I think is missing is that he wasn't just playing the outside linebacker in the 3-4 and attacking quarterbacks. They had him uh, as an outside linebacker, basically a Sam. They had him in the the Bruce Irvin role here in Seattle, um, which is now going to be the Daryl Taylor role where he was setting the edge against the run. He was dropping into coverage. He had a, um, was out in the flat and, you know, in zone. Um, they had him doing lots of things uh, and a lot of changes. Do you expect him to take kind of an undersized five tech role then? No. Like behind Kerry Hyder? No, I expect him to take a, um, to be the, uh, to be a guy that, that fits in at, at Sam Lant linebacker slash defensive end in the Bruce Irvin role. Um, and so he would be a backup to Daryl Taylor guy that could get some pass rush snaps here and there. Uh, not a five tech, he would be seven or nine tech. Um, I mean, he's, he's bigger than he was in his San Francisco days. So, uh, it'll be interesting to me. So, so you bring up kind of a good point in that role in that those guys both have very similar skill sets. We haven't seen it yet with Daryl Taylor on the field, but all reports indicate and the film from college indicate that's the kind of player he is. So when you take a look at like a uh, Marquise Blair, and we'll we'll get through a lot of players here, um, and I'm kind of mixing it up a little bit. But if you put Marquise Blair side by side with Daryl Taylor, who do you want on the field in in a nickel situation? You know, Daryl Taylor's going to come up and rush. Alden Smith might come up and rush, but there's so many options now mm-hmm. on the on the the roster. Who gets the playing time? Like I heard that uh, Marquise Blair is is taking the starting strong side 
or not strong, strong, strong um, safety, strong safety role yep. while Adams is, is on the sidelines. Um, that's awesome, but he's also the starting nickel. Uh, it, it, it was reported. So where are all these guys going to, to fit? Well, I think with Blair, it's, it's a, it's a different, it's a different equation because he is the, he's the fifth defensive back. And so, yeah, he's the starting strong safety when Adams is out, when Adams is back, he'll become the starting nickel, right? And then he's also the starting nickel. So instead of when they go to, to the nickel, he moves from strong safety into his nickel spot and they're bringing um, Ryan Neal in as the strong safety in those situations. So they're moving, they're moving Blair around, but that's, you know, that's the nickel stuff that doesn't really affect um, Smith and, and Taylor because in the nickel, yeah, you lose that linebacker spot, which they play, but they move up and become defensive ends. And so really what it comes down to when, as far as, trying to figure out the playing time is all the defensive ends, which is where I started with all of this when I brought up Smith is because they, they have so many pass rushers, like edge pass rushers um, who plays, right? And you're going to have a rotation where it's going to be, you know, 65, 35, um, ideally between two players at every spot. But, you know, you've got, you know, for the really for three pass rushing spots, um, you've got like nine guys. So there's just, there's so many bodies. Somebody is going to yeah, be on that the outside. That camp battle in. is just amazing to me. It's just going to be fun to watch, but it's also going to be somebody, some of these players, some of these talented players aren't going to make the roster. They're going to get cut. They're going to get picked up by another team. Um, it's almost like cornerback um, was for Seattle for, you know, mm-hmm. the 2013 season where you had guys get cut, get picked up by other teams and become their starter. Um, and, you know, defensive end is almost at that level this year for, for the Seahawks. Cause, and it's something that the national media really hasn't even put together for Seattle yet. No, you know, they're so used to Seattle's having pass rush problems. And then last, especially last year where uh, at the first part of the year, they, they had nothing going as far as a pass rush um, that that's sort of the, everyone's take on the Seahawks uh, front. Um, but what's the, your take? What's your take on, on what the rotation might look like? Well, say, if you look at last, the last year with the, the last eight games when they were, I think they led the NFL in sacks in that time. And they were like the number three defense overall over that stretch. Um, I think that's kind of what you look at. And then you realize they added a uh, hider to the mix on top of that. Um, and maybe Alden Smith. I mean, it is a deep and talented group. Um, obviously, Dunlap's the starter on one side. Uh, and Taylor. I mean, he, he, yeah. Taylor's added to that mix. He didn't play a single down last year. Yeah, but he's he's a, he's going to start at linebacker and then move move up. Um, right. But he's still going to be available almost at any time. Yeah. Based on you know scheme and matchups and so. Yeah. Forth. So he's going to be able to, to to pass rush whenever they want him to. Um, but yeah, Dunlap's going to start on one side and then who's going to start on the other? Probably, um, Hyder is going to start Probably. on the other side. He took first team snaps yep. the, yesterday. And then, um, you know, that'll be, that'll be the base. And then, you know, um, Hyder slash Collier can move inside. Collier might start at the three tech, um, and just be, they've a, got the, Monet in there yep, right now. I know. I'm just saying Collier might end up starting at, at, at the three tech, um, or at least in passing situations. Um, and so they'll, and just 
the conversion of him to a defensive tackle maybe um nearing completion but um and then you've got Kim Dietschy in that same role yeah you've got him in there you've got uh and then who who comes in so you've got guys like um uh Robinson who's going to probably be Dunlap's backup and and get snaps over there and then on uh on the the other side, Daryl Taylor is going to need snaps and yeah. um, Collier is going to want to play there, but I think he's going to end up at the three tech. Rasheem Green, um, Green. W- wants to factor right. in there, but he looks like a guy who might be on the uh, outside looking <laughs> in, but he's also when healthy, he's flashed some totally. incredible talent. He just has a hard time being healthy enough to ever make an impact. So we'll and see what happens. With him. You know, yeah. you've got Al Woods that can come in there for, uh, Puna Ford, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a rotation role. I mean, there's a lot of guys. And Monet and, can and move not... over and, and <laughs> for and into the nose tackle for. And, and then you've got four interior uh, guys uh, that that play up close to the line of scrimmage that can be a factor as well. Jamal Adams mm-hmm. as a as a pass rusher. You've got Jordan Brooks with elite sideline to sideline speed. You've got Bobby Wagner, who's always been good at selectively coming in on on a blitz, and and um and then Marquise Blair as a kind of a wild card in this whole thing, I think the team really envisions him being a second Jamal Adams on this team. Yeah. They can play anything really just be all over the field. When they, kind of a, when they a drafted weapon. him, it felt like that was kind of what they were, what they wanted, what they were trying to do. Um, and then last year, I mean, that was really what they wanted from him as the nickel. And there they were, you know, they had the digs as, as the, the single high safety. And then essentially you have, uh, two uh, rogue strong safeties up near the line of scrimmage um, with Adams and Blair and letting them do whatever, uh, the, you know, that that particular play call asked them to do, but it could be all, it could be anything. And, um, but then, you know, with Blair's injury, it never, we never really get to see it. And I think this year, I think this year we finally get to see it. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's really exciting. I mean, if you put all those players together that we just talked about, like 12 players of that nucleus, you could really make an argument, Keith, that that's one of the best front seven combinations in the NFL. You know, and you add the safeties in to that mix, mm-hmm. and it's it's crazy amount of talent and scheme diversity in that group. Yeah. It's like, man, Ken Norton just must, I wouldn't even be able to sleep at night if I was Ken Norton, because I would be thinking about all the combinations that I could have at my calling to, to really just make the defense really fun and dynamic that it probably as good or better than any defense the Seahawks have had in the last 10 years. And we've had some great ones. We had three years in a row where we were the top defense in the NFL. I'm not saying that we're going to have the secondary that kind of completes that whole thing, but I'm just talking about the front, like mm-hmm. the, the front, seven essentially that are just amazing. I mean, as, as good as the front seven and the safeties are on this roster, I wonder how much we're going to get to see them really be fun. Or if Norton's going to want to try and protect the cornerbacks, not, do you think he'd run in base more this year just because of that? No, maybe not that, but just not blitz as much. Um, and so that way you have both Wagner and Brooks dropping back into coverage um, in order to fill out, you know, the zones and, and, and just protect the cornerbacks a little bit uh, because of 
Well, let's just face it. That's the you weakest position. you think that position. they would drop seven into coverage on a regular basis? Yeah. How, what would that look like to you? What would that look like? It would look like a... So you'd run a base base front. No, you wouldn't run a base front. You'd run um uh you'd run kind of a uh like a nickel package where you'd have, you know, your your more of a NASCAR y kind of front, two linebackers, five um uh defensive backs, and then you drop into a cover three situation where you've got digs um in the back middle, you've got the cornerbacks in the back outside thirds, mm-hmm. and then your your um, two linebackers and and two strong safeties kind of uh, forming an envelope underneath that, uh, asking them to throw the ball, you know, three yards. That's a and, lot of athleticism. Yeah, you're you're asking you, basically you're creating a situation where you're like feel free throw throw it for that three yard gain, and then we're going to come up and make a tackle. Um, and you're just going to, ha- you're going to have to be patient enough to do that over and over and over and over again, if you want to score, cause you're not beating us deep and, uh, and you're not going to beat us underneath. You're not going really going to beat us underneath completely because right. you're going to have to take that short gain and then nobody, you're not, those guys aren't missing tackles. All of them were tackling machines. Um, so you're, so that tells me that you would be really confident in this defense in a sense, because what you're saying is. And I would imagine, knowing you, that what you're saying is at the beginning of the year, we would kind of do that more and let the corners develop behind this defense. Mm-hmm. And and then the defense really can be dynamic because you can do everything really well. Yeah. And so that is kind of what I'm saying is, is you can protect your corners that way, dropping seven into coverage and letting them just be that outside um at the outside back third of um, that zone where you're not really asking them to um, match someone step for step as, you know, in, in man coverage and instead, you know, work it that way. And so you just kind of take away the big play and you ask teams to throw it under like underneath um, and then let your safeties and linebackers do a bunch of tackling. Um, And so all of that works. And you've also got pass rushers. So sure, they're they're taking these, you know, three to five, six yard dink and dunks, trying to get down the field, but one sack and it's over, right? And that, that's the end of a drive. And you've got pass rushers that can get there. So um, there are times in P, the Pete Carroll era where Seattle's defense has been frustrating because they keep giving up third down conversions and they allow teams to, you know, kind of methodically move it down the field. But then at the end of the game, they've given up, you know, 16 points because um, all those drives ended in field goals, but one, and a lot of drives ended up, ended just outside of field goal range because that's, that's what's happening, right? You're, you're, you're forcing them to string together a 10, 12 play drive if they're going to score. And at some point they're either going to make a mistake or, or uh, the front, Line, you know, the, the pass pressures are going to get a sack and that kills a drive or there's going to be a penalty and that will kill a drive. Um, and that's sort of what Pete Carroll has done. And that's what he's preached. And last year was a little different in that they attacked so much um, in, and forced a lot of, of um, 
you know, plays that way, but they also gave up a lot of big plays. And you know that killed Pete Carroll. He hated the, the, that they gave So how do play. you create a balance, Keith, where you're not conservative, you're not overly aggressive, but you still create a lot of turnover opportunities? Um, we've got some turnover opportunity players mm -hmm. on the roster. Let's talk about that for half a second, then we'll switch to the to the offense. Like, what do you envision this team to look like as far as a turnover machine? Well, I think it's going to depend on um, whether they can get pressure with the front four regularly or whether they have to blitz. Um, and a lot of some of that will come will depend on on the inside of interior pass rush because the the edges they're gonna the pass rush is going to be great. Um, but if there's nothing coming in the middle, the quarterback will simply step forward um, and the the outside guys will just run right by. Um, and so if they can get some interior push, they're going to create a lot of turnovers because you're going to have seven guys back and a quarterback, you know, throwing um, off his spot into tight coverage or just, you know, out of rhythm. Um, and they're going to generate a ton of, a ton of turnovers that way. If they can't regularly get that uh, pass rush because they're not getting the interior push, they're going to have to, they're going to have to blitz more. Um, they're going to have to do other things in order to create those opportunities because that's one of the things about, you know, playing in the, in the zone is that um, eventually some guy will come open. And if you can't, if they, if the quarterback can step up and avoid the outside pass rush, that's going to buy them an extra couple of seconds to find that the soft spot in the zone. And so it, it really that interior pass rush becomes the thing that that makes or breaks this defense from a turnover point i totally yeah. agree i think that you absolutely completely nailed it as far as the key to this whole thing because pete doesn't like to give up those third down conversions you're you're absolutely right but he also likes to get the ball mm -hmm. he likes to take the ball um it's all about he the ball. always has talked about playing a a, a four-man front to, to generate enough pressure mm -hmm. um, for this exact reason, because it allows the team to the, their back end to, to work at optimum efficiency. The um, I think the key thing, and I, and I keep going back to this, but the key player in all of this, if it could work would be like Robert Kimdichi because he's just got a huge opportunity here on this yeah. defense. I think to make, not only make the roster, but have an impact. His if ability. he can somehow make the roster and make the impact, this whole defense could just really work from really a, well. From a talent perspective, he has the ability to get pressure on the inside, to push the pocket, and not just you know prevent the quarterback from stepping up um, and letting the defensive ends get to him, but just to get to the quarterback on his own. He's got the talent to do that. Um, for him, it's always been a matter of work ethic and practice mm -hmm. habits and discipline and 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 those kind of things. And after being out of the league and now fighting to get his way back into the league, he's saying all the right things about recognizing, you know, the chance that he's been given and and not willing to waste the opportunity and and all these kind of things. And if he if his head really is screwed on straight, he could go back to being what we thought he was going to be as he came out of college. And that's a truly special player. And if you had a truly special player in the center of that line, that pass rush, 
this defense yeah. becomes scary. Yes, that's and exactly I, what I'm saying. Because it's either Kemdichi or it's Collier. Yeah. And you've got Collier with a skill set that's good. I mean, it's solid, but he's a bull rusher guy. He doesn't have a lot of moves, a lot of weapons at his disposal. He's got good, he's strong really hands. Really good. He's really strong, but he's not a dynamic, dynamic. athlete. Exactly. So interesting. All right. But, Anything else on the defense? Well, I'm we'll just going to say, as, as as we we go through this, we talk about this this defense being dominant. Um, we've kind of glossed over that the weakest part of the defense, and the reason why the national media says this defense isn't going to be good is the cornerbacks. Um, but as we've pointed out here over the last 14 minutes is that um, cornerback isn't the most important piece of the scheme. When you're playing this cover three and you're asking them to just essentially be safeties in the back end and play zone, um, it's not as big of a deal. Is that going to be frustrating for fans to watch? I don't know. You're talking about giving up a lot of stuff underneath when you when you say that. Now they do they have to be able to change that up. They can't just play cover three all the time. You're right, they can't, but they're that's gonna be their base. Um that, that's gonna be what they do most of the time. And that's what they've done the entirety of Pete Carroll's tenure here. Is is DJ Reed and, and uh, Akella Witherspoon capable a- of holding down the outside edges on their own? Akella Witherspoon, yes. DJ Reed is a man to be corner. determined. He's a, he's a guy who will excel in man coverage. Um, that's who he is. He's better than the rest of the cornerbacks at that. Um, but he lacks the length um, to do what they want the corners to do. The reason why the corners were Richard Sherman and Brandon Browner and all these really tall guys is they that was very beneficial in a cover three. Um, mm-hmm. You know, DJ Reed is what, five foot three? Um, okay. Not really. I'm just, you know, <laughs> yeah, he's the second um, hobbit on the team. Russell Wilson's the first one. Yep. Um, wait, then... just kidding. I didn't mean to offend all hobbits. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually both of them are, are phenomenal athletes. Um, especially Reed. I mean, his, yeah, we can go that he, but he does he doesn't have that traditional Seahawk length. Um, and so that we don't know what, how that's going to work well, they may not, go to the pure cover three the way I kind of expect them to entirely because they've got a corner him and another guy in rookie Trey Brown who have man cover skills. And actually Trey flowers for all of uh, the much maligned um, guy that he is uh, his man cover stats are really good and it's zone cover stats are kind of bad. Um, and so they, they might look at that and go, okay, well maybe we're going to do something different. I don't expect them to just because it's Pete Carroll and, and Ken Norton. And I know what they want and they want to run that cover three. That's Pete Carroll's, you know, bread and butter. Um, but they might find themselves with the personnel to do something different. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, behind Reed and Witherspoon. The competition will be fierce in this offseason. We know that uh, Amadi and Blair are going to kind of be that nickel in that nickel role, mm-hmm. but you've got to have a couple other backups um, yep. to sit behind Reed and Witherspoon that are going to take some snaps. You've got Trey Brown, Flowers, and Demarius Randall, and Pierre Desir 
um, all kind of competing for five total spots. How do you see that kind of playing out? Uh, I don't have any clue how that's going to play out. And that's why this is so much fun because the team really likes Randall. Um, and he's got a bunch of starts at cornerback. Um, you know, and so he's a guy that, that seems to factor in. Uh, I don't think that we've seen the best of Trey flowers. I know Pete Carroll continues to talk about him and love him. Um, and so I, I, there's that Pierre Desir was the best cornerback this team has ever cut. Um, and <laughs> the thing is he made the roster and then the, a, a trade for Jeremy Lane fell apart. And so he ended up because of the guaranteed money, they ended up letting Desir go and he went and was the best, uh, defensive back in, in, um, for the Colts, uh, for a year. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things he's had a couple of bad years since then. And, I mean, he's a tremendous in locker room guy, but we'll see what he's and got he's left back in, in the a tank. defense and a scheme that he plays well in. Yes, um, and like I said, we'll we'll see what he's got left in the tank. Uh, the last couple of years might have um, shown that he's, you know, approaching the end of a career. But if he comes back and plays like he did a couple of years ago, when <laughs> it's funny, in dur- during that preseason, uh, I kept seeing fans and beat reporters talk about Richard Sherman and what he's doing on the outside, not noticing that Sherman was on the sideline and that Desir had taken Sherman's spot uh, in those preseason games. Um, and it was, I don't know, kind of entertaining. So he's a guy with a, with, with a lot of ability, and we'll see. Um, he also is older and has been around the league now and had a couple of bad years the last couple of years. He very much could be a non-factor, so... We have no what do you idea. think about um, like a Deshaun Shedd coming back in to help the Seahawks in a in a coaching capacity? Um, oh God, I'd love that. Shedd's the he isn't he back there? I thought he was. I thought he has come back and joined the team as as a coach. If he has, I hadn't seen that, and I wish that I had. That's a that's a phenomenal. So Deshaun Shedd is the guy that's been. I gotta go look that up, Keith, because I'm. He spent two and a half years on the practice squad. He was a safety. Then he was a cornerback. Then he was a safety. Then he made the roster to, to make play special teams. Um, and they, you know, they moved him over to corner and then they moved him back to safety. And he goes, no, I really want to stay at corner, even though traditionally he'd been a safety, but yeah, I think he, he saw, uh, they, they brought him back. He's the coach for the Seahawks. Yeah. Defensive I, back coach. I think assistant they, they, defensive back. he saw that he could make an impact at corner, even though it was a, um, a very deep corner room and he fought like crazy to, to get a spot on the roster, played special teams like crazy and eventually worked his way up to being a starter. And it's just an incredible, you, you don't see guys that, start out for two and a half years on a practice squad, end yeah. up starting caliber um, corners and, uh, you know, I've heard a- it from a couple people that um, Pete Carroll believes that Deshaun shed is going to be a defensive coordinator someday in the NFL and possibly a head coach because he's got that kind of yeah. um, mental ability. So the thing about the thing, when you have guys like shed, who fought and everything in order for every opportunity and, and had to 
practice go at it for two and a half years and learn is it didn't necessarily come as naturally to them. So they had to learn all the tiny little um, intricate parts of everything. And if he can teach, then he can be great because that what we're describing in all of this is Chris Richard, who granted he was a higher pick, came in, got some opportunities and just kind of bombed out of the NFL, ended up back with Pete Carroll um, where he went to college um, you know, as a, as a, an assistant there and then worked his way up to being a defensive coordinator and a head coaching candidate. Um, but really what made Chris Richard great was his ability to teach all the little details. Um, and, you know, his ability to turn Brandon Browner into an actual corner and, um, you know, to get guys like Byron Maxwell, who was a college special teamer and not really, never really even played on defense uh, and turning him into a starting caliber corner um, at the NFL. I mean, this is that, this is what Chris Richard did and is known for. And if Shed can teach, he is in a position to be the next, Chris Richard and become that guy. And honestly, that's what this team has been missing since Richard left. Yeah. Um, I, I saw this news and I, we just failed to talk about it, but I think I picked up on it like a, a six weeks ago. And um, I think it is huge. It's like a, it's like one of those things that takes time a little bit to develop, mm-hmm. uh, but Pete trusts him back there and he's not the head guy, but I think it's only a matter of time. It yeah. sounds like so. Uh, switching gears, let's go to the offense, Keith. Uh, your biggest storyline that you're following on the offensive side of the ball? Uh, it's got to be, um, you know, how does the wide receiver like rotation work? Because you know who the top two guys are, but you've got Eskridge and Swain and uh, a whole litany of other guys, um, including Penny Hart, who is continuing to um, just get more and more people excited, um, all battling for snaps and roster spots and who's going to be the number three and who's, you know, we have guys that could be the number three or they could be off the roster completely. It's a, it's a, it's not the deepest group in terms of experience. It doesn't seem like it, but there's a lot of, there's a, there's some talent there. It's just who is going, who out of that talent becomes, the NFL caliber player, not just, yeah, a, not just potential, but actually, you know, production. And so I was, I was out yeah. watching a little bit of film, uh, Cody Parkinson from a couple of years ago. I, I just managed to, I don't know why it came up on my, um, YouTube feed, but it did. So I clicked on it and it was Stanford highlights, you know, during the, his, uh, senior campaign and a player that I noticed besides Colby Parkinson on there was Connor Weddington. At the time, Cotter Wennington was kind of their speed guy, slot guy. Um, and he ended up, like in this film that I was watching, he ended up taking, I don't know, four or five dump off passes and then running in space to pick up additional yards. And I was like, that's the guy that we picked up. Um, and so I kind of made note of that. I just, you know, so in that role, that same role that we talked about earlier today, where we picked up that one player that was 170 pounds, at least Carter Wennington is like six foot 190. Mm-hmm. So with, with, with a lot of speed, you mentioned Tyler Lockett and, and Medcalf and then Eskridge. 
I think that's definitely your top three. But behind that, you're right. Swain and and um Penny and Penny Hart, Hart. to Johnson. me that's the top five. That's yeah. the guys that are locked almost. Um we heard last week from Corbin Smith from Seahawk Maven Sports Illustrated that Penny Hart was really the guy that was popping for him in the in the mini camps earlier. And he was a guy that he was excited to see um in regular um camp that we're going through right now. And so I'm, I've got my eyes on him as well as kind of being a guy that maybe can even take it at the next step. He didn't get a ton of playing time last year, but he was on the roster for at least half the season. Mm-hmm. So He seems to have a, um, a great rapport with uh, Russell Wilson, um, where he just know like Wilson just knows um, when, so he can throw the ball bef- right as Hart's coming out of his break. Cause he knows he's going to get that separation and, and catch the football. So that just that kind of stuff. He doesn't have to wait that extra, you know, tenth of a second to see it um, before he throws it. And what's interesting to me is that there's only one DK Medcalf on this roster. Yeah. And every and and the majority of other guys that are kind of accumulated are They're all more like Tyler Lockett. Lockett or Eskridge. Yeah. And so let's talk about Shane Waldron a little bit because for me, that was the biggest storyline. Um, on on the offensive side of the ball is Shane Waldron. Like, what kind of impact is this new offense going to have? We already kind of talked about how he's going to create space for wide receivers and scheme things open and so forth that we've kind of been challenged with in the past. But it really is a dynamic shift, I think, in the offense as far as um, timing, tempo, uh, running sets out of the same look mm-hmm. um talk to us about that and maybe the impact that he would have across the roster from russell wilson to chris carson penny and to the wide wide receivers and tight ends well okay so that question we could do an entire show on um, <laughs> uh, but what you what you look at with that is there's a couple things one that with um in the past both with um Tom Cable, when he was managing the running game and um, when it was Schottenheimer, uh, they were, it was very much a um, straight ahead, we're going to outmuscle you. I mean, it's inside zone. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's some of that. But um, it's very much, it became, we have to be bigger and stronger than you to win. And oftentimes they did. Uh, sometimes they didn't. With Waldron's offense in the running game side, because they brought over, um, the you know an assistant running back coach who's now the running game Cunning, coordinator, um, but that from that approach, it's now going to be more about you know spreading guys out and and getting to the edge and and outside zone. So it's it'll be like you know the stretch play and then they cut back. Um, so what you're doing is you're taking a defensive lineman and you're pushing him in a direction that he wants to kind of go in, and you just keep pushing. Yeah, and so you 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 know if a guy. You know, if the play is going to the right and the guy attacks your left shoulder, um, you just let him. You, you don't let him go, but you just right it. Um, if he attacks your right shoulder, then you push him wide and you just get him to go down the sideline in that way. And by doing the either one of those you two things, you create cutback lanes for the running back, and um, that becomes it's just a different thing. And so you're rather than forcing your guys to win one-on-one battles, 
um, in order for everything to work. Now you're setting up a situation where we're going to scheme victories for them, even if they wouldn't necessarily win that one-on-one battle. And you're getting guy, you're get, you're you're going to tire defensive lines out because now they're going sideways instead of up the field, and this is more movement. It's it's more work. Um, and so getting an opportunity where you can maybe get a guy like Aaron Donald in the uh, division to just have to work harder to make his impact and you tire him out a little bit and then, you know, you can get more success uh, later in games or force teams to rotate him off the field more earlier in games and, and that kind of stuff. It's just, there's just, there's scheming successes rather than just, trying to line up and punch the other one in the mouth. That's, that's the cliche, right? Um, there's more than that to the offense now. It's, it's, I loved the fact that yeah. you, you paused the question, you know, uh, listing out all the other dynamic players, and you focused on the offensive line. Because I really do think that that's totally an underrated thing um, to talk about. Well, you're all, you actually got to recognize really... who you're talking to, right? I'm the... <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm, I, I have, I've come to the realization that, uh, I like offensive line play. I can, I study it. I like watching their footwork and their hands and all of that. And I get, I'm the only person who does and that all of our listeners are like, please talk about something else. But that's kind of my thing. And so when you look at that impact, I let it to me, it shows how to, their ability to win more regularly on every play will make Russell Wilson's job easier and he's going to be awesome. It's going to, that's, that's so key. It's going to get uh, guys like DK Metcalf 40 yards downfield um, with regularity where he's not, Wilson's not running for his life by the time he gets downfield. Or the defensive back is climbing on Metcalf's shoulders. He's yeah. got separation because he's been kind of helped with the scheme. Yeah. And, and all of that. So there's, there's just so much to where, um, there's just all these things work together. Um, but the offensive line play is going to make the other players who are already awesome. It's just going to make them better. Tell me how that works. Like what, what makes you confident that that, that this scheme specifically does that? So when, when cable was here and we, we went through the bubble years and so forth, it's a similar kind of blocking scheme in a broad sense. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but in a broad sense, it kind of is. We got kind of all excited. Now, it could have just been the cable thing, right? But we got kind of excited when we switched blocking schemes. We kind of went with that um, bigger guy mentality, uh, the bull, you know, pushing guys out of the way, mm-hmm. power run scheme. So now we're going back to a more, it, I'm not going to say it's finesse necessarily but talk to me the, about the difference between finesse and scheme and power and how it makes Russell Wilson's job or the offense look different or feel different well it they the the principles that they're based on in order to create running lanes are different um in Tom Cable's scheme where they went with a, you know, I mean, Justin Britt's probably the best example where they had a 335 pound center. Um, and you know, that's just huge by NFL standards, but you know what? The guy could, the guy could run people over. Um, and you don't find centers that could do that. So, um, you know, he was, he, he was the great example for them. Um, J.R. Sweezy, maybe another one who, 
These guys are super strong. They can push people backwards. Um, and they create running lanes that way. Those guys also tend to be bigger, a little slower of foot. They struggle in pass blocking um, because they don't move side to side as well. They have a hard time staying in front of, you know, quicker uh, pass rushers. And so it's a trade-off. What you end up with in this scheme, it's, I don't want to say it's finesse because it really isn't. It's just different and based on different principles where you get guys moving sideways rather than up the field. Um, and you don't have to push them back. You can just push them sideways out of the way. Um, and or hold your own. Yeah. And, and so it, it becomes, you're using different principles. And I, 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 like, I don't like the saying that, that it's finesse because I don't either. Um, you can, <laughs> we're still talking about 300 pound plus guys. Yeah. Animals. Um, it's, right. It, but it, it's just based on different principles. Now, um, you end up with guys, you, you need guys that are a little more agile to run this scheme, which tends to mean that they also end up being better pass blockers typically because they're more agile. They have the ability to mirror, um, what the defender's doing and stay in front of them and that kind of stuff a little bit better. Uh, at the same time, you end up in a situation where you can't all, you know, it's sometimes you, it can be less dominant. Like it's got a much higher floor, but lower ceiling type of uh, running scheme. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a trade-off, but I just think that given Wilson and given, you know, that, you know, what this team wants to do, it's just a better fit for, for the, his talents for the talents of the linemen, for um, all of that. I mean, the the situation in, in terms of all of this is the other thing that it does, since everything seems to be going, it's a stretch play, right? There's a lot of outside zone um, where things are going laterally first until the, until the running back puts their foot in the ground and, and cuts up field. That lateral movement can create lateral movement in the linebackers that opens things up for the wide receivers play action, pedal. a lot of play action. And so you can manipulate the defense in different ways, uh, this way. And it allows you to, especially, you know, you get everything going to the left and it's a play action. Wilson comes back to the right. Well, then guess what? The linebackers all shifted over because they, yeah. they stay relative. That essentially buys Russell Wilson two seconds. Yeah. And, Easy. and, and it also opens up if they move laterally, you know, to their right, which would be the offense's left, it opens up a space for a tight end or a running back or, um, a receiver to catch an easy pass, uh, because the linebackers have moved. So it's, it's kind of opened up a zone, um, and get the ball in space and turn up field. And that's one of the things the Seahawks just didn't do under Schottenheimer is they didn't create situations where uh, the receivers got the ball in their hands with the ability to do something after. Um, and the Seahawks were one of the lowest um, yards after catch yards team. after catch yeah. um, in the entire NFL. And you think about it, you guys got, you got Lockett and Metcalf and you're not getting any yards after the catch. I mean, that's kind of crazy. Um, honestly, I want yeah. 
either of those guys with the ball in their hands and an opportunity to make uh, safeties look stupid because they both they both have the the I mean Lockett's agility and ability to just go around anyone and do you really want to you know you got DK Metcalf in space running right at you and you're a a safety who's thirty pounds lighter than him. and not as fast as him. Do you really want anything to do with that? No, you don't. Uh, <laughs> there's just, there's, I mean, it, I just always felt that that was such a, it was such a missed opportunity for the Seahawks with, uh, when, when Schottenheimer was here, that they just I agree. didn't take advantage of the fact that they had guys with incredible, unique And that's why sets. he was fired. I mean, I'm convinced that that's why he's, he was fired and philosophical differences. I think it points to exactly this because, uh, we couldn't adapt. You know, we were a one-trick pony mm-hmm. on offense, and um, and this is definitely what we were missing. Yeah, um, I think Pete Carroll. Camp went, Pete, Perrell, Pete, Pete Carroll went into that meeting the day after his, you know, defiant. No, I'm not changing coordinators, and it was like, all right, so here's what I want us to do. I want us to adapt. I want us to to evolve. And instead, Schottenheimer wanted to double down on what they do, what they did. And not change and not evolve. And that that was why Schottenheimer is no longer uh, in Seattle. And instead they get Waldron, who is a very, very different person. He is, whereas Shotty's scheme was very old school and, you know, dinosaur-like. Um, Waldron's, you know, the young gun with all the new ideas and, and bringing over Sean McVay's stuff from the Rams. And it's just a very... He uses every single person in the offense, including the linemen, for specific jobs in specific alignments Mm -hmm. to create specific outcomes. The other thing that I really like is the lack of predictability that you were going to get. Because from based on formation, you could tell what the Seahawks were going to do a lot um, under Schottenheimer. There were certain formations they only ran in. They never threw the ball. Um, there are certain formations that they only threw the ball. They never ran. And so even though there might be play action and whatnot, teams would kind of know what was, you know. The, we would know. Uh, yeah, but I mean, even. You, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and so, but where Waldron, his offense is set up to where from a certain personnel and formation standpoint, he has multiple running plays, multiple passing plays that he can run off that same exact formation. And Russell Wilson in that sort of a situation where you're not just scheming to, to run a play, you're actually running a deception mm-hmm. campaign. So you're, you're taking the entire game to set up defenses, you know, essentially yeah. uh, for, for your fourth quarter. And Russell Wilson is just such a master at that. So, yep. It's just okay. it's just a great fit for the for Seattle's talent. I agree. Um, Pete Carroll in his press conference talked about some camp battles, and he mentioned four specific position groups. Three of them are on the offense, and two of them are on the offensive line. So I want to definitely get your take on these. We already talked about cornerback mm-hmm. as being one of his camp battles. He wants yep. to see how that shakes out. But he also talked about tight end, and then he talked about center. Mm-hmm. And right tackle being a open competition. Yeah. And I want to kind of get your, let's just, st- just stay with the offensive line since we were just there. What do you think about that statement coming from your head coach on the first day of camp? Oh, I love it. Um, especially the right tackle because 
Cedric Abuhi was terrible at the beginning of the year. Uh, the, you know, his, fir- his first times in the games was bad, and Shell was good. But at the end of the year, Shell was injured and not playing well, and Abuhi was great. And honestly, the both of them deserve a shot to battle for a starting job. Um, and both of them have parts of their game that says, no, you don't get to just take this. It's not just going to be given to you. You're, you're going to have to earn it. And so I love that the right tackle um, spot is open for the two guys to, to fight for it. I think it's going to make for a better camp. I think it's going to make for a better result uh, coming out of camp. Um, and it's going to have... It's just it, it it's just going to be good for the team. Center is not uh, a position where I'm as excited because you know we saw what Posick was last year. He is you know he lacks the functional strength you expect of a typical offensive lineman, but he's got good feet and blah blah blah. And we saw you know Fuller come in and just look abysmally bad um, when he was in there. And so it's a competition because you don't have a starter caliber player. Um, and so I, I, I'm less excited about that one. I kind of just expected Posick to be given the job because they never replaced Fuller with a competent player. Um, but maybe they see something in practice and they think that Fuller didn't show um, his ability, his talent, uh, last season and I'm overreacting. You know, different players facing different teams and different individual defensive players can look bad on any given day. So I'm willing mm-hmm. to give a guy like Fuller a little bit more of a chance oh, uh, yeah. to sh- show out. Um, what do you think about the tight end thing? Oh, the, so, tight, the tight end one is, is fascinating. And I mentioned receiver when you asked earlier, but I honestly was like, do I mention tight end now or wait? Um, because you've got Disley who for two years looked like an amazing, you know, find like they, they um, struck gold with him for, you know, two years. And then he, but they had season ending injuries. And then last year you could tell he was not healthy. He um, was still a fantastic blocker, but um, any kind of his ability to run, he looked more like the Disney in college who had a hard time running um, and not the guy that's his first two years in the league where he looked great. Um, and so he's actually going to be healthy. Uh, they brought in, you know, Everett, who was very productive for the Rams, knows the offense. Um, he's like kind of that, uh, guy that you bring in because he just makes everyone else learn the offense faster. Cause you can kind of watch what he's doing and, and he can explain things in the film room and, and, and that kind of stuff. It's just a, a good situation, but he was incredibly productive with the Rams. And then, you know, the wild card in there is Parkinson, who is this incredible, uh, unique player. He's six foot seven and runs well. Um, and I and understand from Pete Carroll that he's spent the entire offseason in the weight room. That's, yeah. I mean, so if he, he's six foot seven and runs well, if he can block at all, then he becomes uh, a weapon, not just a player. Um, Nobody's saying it, but the last tall wide receiver or tall tight end that could run um, that Seattle had was Jimmy Graham. And they, at times, built their offense around trying to get Jimmy Graham the ball. Um, You know, Parkinson doesn't have the 
you know, the history and the, the NFL production, but he's a tall wide receiver who can run. There's a lot of similarities in um, skill set, including. And I, and I mentioned earlier, we don't, we only have one DK Metcalf on the roster. This is a guy that's not going to have DK Metcalf speed, but he's playing from a different spot yep. with different coverage mm-hmm. uh, on him that could exploit certain situations. And if you're looking to the Rams for uh, how that might be used, I wouldn't look at Everett and the other tight ends. I would look at Cooper Cup, who is, you know, the big six foot four slot receiver with good hands um, that just teams had a hard time covering him because, you know, you put a, a slot corner on him and he's got him, he's, you know, he's got five inches of, of height difference. Well, now you're going to put, if you put a slot corner on, um, you know, on um, Seattle Parkinson. Parkinson, you're you're he's gonna you're gonna give up seven inches or or eight inches, um, plus the extra length and ter- arm length and that kind of stuff. Like it's it's gonna be a matchup nightmare, and I really think that you're gonna see him out in the slot a lot, uh, just for that reason. But if he has been spend if he did spend the weight the off season in the weight room and he could bulk up enough that he can block competently, he doesn't have to be great; just be competent. Um. Yeah, then they can use him in all sorts of different things. Well, also really Parkinson. I mean, what is the tight end role as a blocker in Shane Waldron's blocking, like uh, Cunningham's, you know, line blocking scheme? What are the tight ends going to be asked to do? Are they going to be asked to seal the edges, or are they going to be asked to 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 be an extra tackle? Um, it they're going to be asked to at times it, a little of everything um i would i would say especially when you've got disley next to whoever the right tackle ends up being you're going to see disley might he might as well be a tackle because they trust him to take on a defensive end one on one and win and he does um and that just makes life easier uh but if you put someone beside disley on the so you have two tight ends on that side well, now you have a different option because now whoever's on the outside of him, whether it be Everett or, or Parkinson, they can seal and you can release Disley. Um, and you can mm-hmm. really confuse teams. Or you can, I mean, there's just so many other things that you can do when you've got multiple talented tight ends. All three guys can catch the ball and run routes. Yep. And yeah. all of them are a little bit unique. Um, I mean, no one, you're not going to find a better blocker than Will Disley. Uh, no, you're not going to find another six, seven guy who can run like Colby Parkinson. Um, I you, keep going back to the red zone with that guy too. I yeah, mean, and Everett's, wow. Everett's crisp routes and ability to get separation despite his size, um, is Makes gonna, him just a, like a big wide receiver. Yeah. I, and he, he's not that big. I mean, for he, a tight end, he's, he's not like that six, big. Yeah. three, six, four, two, 39 or two forty five or something like that. Yeah. He's a, he's his number wise, he's about DK Metcalf, although you'd never confuse the two. Um, uh, but he runs crisp routes. He's also a decent blocker. Um, and so they, they're they all three a little bit unique, but they're all three good at what they do. Um, and the Seahawks just haven't had a tight end room like that. It's always and, been... And then, yeah, go ahead. I would say it's always been either Jimmy Graham and a... And a bunch of, you know, Potter, 
or it's just been, you know, a bunch of fodder (laughs) Um, or Zach, Zach Miller, who was uh, an offensive tackle. Um, He was a better right tackle than Seattle's right tackle. Um, But he wasn't, he was never the threat to run the ball or to to catch the ball. And when we had Wilson here, you know, he was just, he would have been a a second or third tight end on any roster. And we tried to make him more than that. And it just didn't work. So behind that uh, group that we've currently got, um, I noticed that last week in our live show that Corbin Smith singled out Tyler Mabry as a guy that he thought was impressive in and I just camp. don't, I just don't know enough about Mabry to f- figure out where either. he fits in. Um, and do you do you use a roster spot on a fourth tight end? No, like not that's... not a guy like that because I think you have more dynamic athleticism that I think Shane Waldron would want on the field. Yeah, and so I mean I. I Maybe he's maybe he's a hedge, and if one of the guys gets hurt, it's like, hey, at least we got this other guy who we like and know can play and 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 maybe be, it, be a maybe player. It depends but, on what how they use Gerald Everett in alignments. You know, do they do they use Gerald Everett in a slot role or an H back, and that gives another opportunity to have another tight end on the roster because you want a blocking more of a blocking guy available. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, crazy. and. You know, if you keep a fourth tight end because you're like, oh, we're going to be using two tight end sets all the time. And if somebody gets hurt, you know, we want to have be able to rotate and all that kind of stuff. You keep a fourth tight end. Who do you lose? Well, you're going to have five wide receivers instead of six. Or do you have, you know, four running backs, four running three. backs. Yeah. Which really means three running backs because you're Nick using Ballor's up one of those for yeah. um, Nick Ballore, who's your special team star that isn't actually a running back. Well, future show. We will have a roster breakdown and prediction show. <laughs> I would the fifty-three man roster show at some point. Yeah, I keep um, looking at that. It is harder to do than any year that we've done that. It is it is a real is challenge news, this really. year. Yeah, yeah. The, the Seahawks depth is significantly better this year than it was last year, and that was better than it was the year before. Um, and why wouldn't Russell Wilson be excited? about this team, this offensive coordinator, this offensive line, and the weapons that he has to work with, where else is he going to find that combination in um, any other team? I mean, there might be a handful of teams yeah. with all three of those. He's not. And that's why you've seen uh, a complete change of tune from him, is I think he has seen the team. Uh, did he ever really change his tune? Or did we just perceive it? a different way for a while well, as, a, as a, as a whole kind of media group per se. I'm not saying maybe you and I, but just in general, the perception has been that he did change his tune in the off season. It was in a bad way. And so he got eviscerated as well as Pete Carroll and so forth. And now he's back to quote unquote, a new tune, or is it just back to normal? I think it's, well, it's back to normal, but um, I think that the athletic story, which was really well reported, does show that he was disgruntled and it was more than just things being taken out of context. Um, and does that point to some level of immaturity or did he have really legitimate reasons to be concerned about Schottenheimer? Maybe that was unreported or Pete Carroll or the, or the old school offensive philosophy that Pete has that has influence on the, on the offense. I think it's that part, um, the, 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 the philosophies and all of that. And, and he does, does have legitimate reasons to, to be concerned about that, but I think it was more. And what it's, it becomes, 
what Green Bay is dealing with with Aaron Rodgers is when you are the franchise quarterback, you have been for years, you're, you've got the proven track record of being one of the top three quarterbacks in the league. If you say that you want some input on personnel moves and those kind of things. It's um, your responsibility. I mean, you are responsible for the offense. Yeah. And so uh, at, at what point do teams acquiesce to that? And at what point do they push back and say, no, you know, we handle that. I think it depends on the maturity job. level of the actual quarterback. You're seeing, and I don't know Rodgers, but to me that sort of behavior that Rodgers has versus the behavior that Russell Wilson has seems to say that Russell Wilson might be the more mature player. Yeah, but we also see it from Seattle's point of view. If you're not from Seattle and you're not what you don't know Russell Wilson as well as we do. I don't think it looks any different. Um, and so it, but it comes down to, at, this is a, a this can be a whole debate. Um, do you ever allow your quarterback to ha- make to help with personnel decisions? And if you do, what's the qualifications? Where where do you draw the line? I think where you draw the line is the fact that you're either on the same page for the most part or you're not. So I think syncing up wise with Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson, and they're talking about their relationship being better than it ever has been and all that kind of stuff. To me, I, I honestly do believe that they are in sync and, and, and Waldron just kind of adds to that kind of and solidifies that whole thing because I really do believe especially after this year, that Russell Wilson and Shane Waldron will be completely married Mm -hmm. um, because I think that's how well this scheme is going to work. And so as far as personnel decisions, why not let your quarterback, if if you kind of have the same philosophy, why not let your quarterback have a little bit of input, at least perception-wise, internally as an organization, because um, you're going to pick the same guys, type of guys anyway. And, and if they have those sorts of relationships that are built, you know, during the off season and outside of football and so forth, and, and Russ thinks that this player would be ideally suited for this role, I, I would listen to that. Would, would you not? I mean, you've talked about at what point or do you ever allow a player to have any input? Um, my question is, why wouldn't you? Uh, because you're giving that power to one player, but not. But it had it would have to be a special player. True, but would you give Bobby Wagner say uh, about? Yeah, yeah, I would defense? actually. And Pete has said that uh, you know Bobby and and him have conversations about players all the time. It doesn't mean that they go that direction, but he listens to that. And I would imagine there have been players where that has occurred that that we have brought in. I I don't know for sure, but I mean, okay, you can have comp- those conversations and 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 you know that but i think russell wilson it the stories are that he was trying to assert more than just i want like to have this, this is the guy i want if i don't get him in i'm gonna not quite that problems. strong but just he was saying a year ago oh, I, we, we need to add weapons and he brought up antonio brown and mm-hmm. and the team kind of looked and then didn't 
And then it turns out that Brown went to Tampa, won a Super Bowl, and kept you his nose clean the entire time. That's part the of it. Specific questions <laughs> in the offseason. I think it's that part, move or lockout. I, I think it's that's part of it because he was. I think Wilson was being more forceful in terms of his attempted influence um, than I think Pete Carroll was comfortable with. Uh, and Wilson was continuing to try and exert some of that control. And you're like, okay, you'll do that with a special player. Um, okay. So I just looking at quarterbacks, right? So does winning a Super Bowl? Does that have to be the requirement? Um, so then would Joe Flacco have had say in Baltimore over stuff? Not necessarily. You know what he, I mean? So it's he, like, the, it's. But I, Russell Wilson is, is not Joe Flacco. I, you're right. He's not, but you know, um, what about Matthew Stafford? Does he get, does he get input? Well, he may. You know, the, and the reason that I say that is because a guy like Matthew Stafford has has spent his entire year years in the NFL with one team, one organization, different coaches, but nonetheless brings a perspective mm-hmm. that I, as a coach, if I was Sean McVay, I'd be like all over the place on that guy. Like he would become my new best friend. I would understand the ins and outs of what he's thinking, how he thinks, what his makeup is who he thinks he would work well with. And I would try to bring at least one or two of those guys onto my roster. So my quarterback is confident that I just think that that's just part of the process. I think these relationships that like head coaches have with their quarterbacks or offensive coordinators are much closer than we even really think about. I mean, these guys are like every day they're spending together and they're constantly thinking about strategy, the way stuff works, who would work well with them. Who, who do they have a good rapport with that might not be on the team that if, if added could, I just think that that dynamic is always a part of the mix. Yeah. I mean, okay. I, I just, I look at, at the situation in green Bay with, with Rogers oh, it's and horrible. it's terrible. Um, and basically and it sounds like he's going to play for them this year, but he's got kind of an out after that. Yeah. Um, and it, 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 it it's a, it's a complete mess. And so it, what do you, and now that's a situation him? where I would not let him have uh, that sort of control because now your entire organization is in jeopardy. You've got but, one guy trying to control the entire narrative in a negative way. To me, that's not the Russell Wilson situation, at least the way it's been portrayed internally. Like I'm talking about the relationship between coach and player externally. Yeah. It looks the same. We, you just mentioned that, but it wasn't, the same well but the thing is that if you look at it like what does uh rogers want rogers wants to be heard in the same way that you're talking about russell wilson being heard um and being a part of uh, of things um and instead he feels like he was shut out but given rogers career in green bay super bowl mvps and being so close that he's so competitive, I get it. I like, understand. Hasn't he earned the same level of input that Wilson has in your He eyes? may have earned it, but he may have earned it from a different coaching staff. Okay, but so you're going to come in as a new coach and That's tell not what I would do and tell a guy like that Rogers that you have to re earn it 
it does take two to, to, to play. I mean, you've got to have a guy in Rogers have the same sort of um, openness to work with a new regime. If he's got his way and he's shut, shutting folks out, I don't know what's going on. I'm not privy to that information. I'm just saying the behavior says that they're not on the same page. And why is that? And that would be to me that the reason is that both, both sides failed to come together in the middle somewhere. And, you know, that's where they're at. And, and it's, you know, it's bad news for them. It's okay this year because they're going to get it. You know, he's professional enough. He's going to give them everything he's got for this year, but he's definitely gone next year, mm-hmm. which opens that whole thing up. Um, and, and the NFC up, in fact, um, which is good for Seattle. Well, and I mean, you say that he's going to give him everything he's got, but how, how he's committed professional. is he? How, well, he's not committed at all. He's done, one and done. He's one and done. Yeah. Does that affect the ability of the team to rally around him and, and try to get to another Super Bowl? No, I don't think so. I think that the team rallies around him and he's, he gives them everything he's got and he's a professional. And But, you know, that little teeny thing, though, that you just hit up on, the chemistry is shattered. Yeah. So sometimes that's the difference between a Super Bowl team and a team that won and done in the offseason. Okay, what if... Uh... Rodgers has a bad game early and or the team starts off a little slow, gets banged up on defense and people are thinking, well, Rodgers is done after this year anyway. Why don't we get Love in there and get him some reps? And and go out and get a trade deadline uh, compensation package for him? You're not going to get a, well, maybe you, yeah, because he's going to leave as a free agent. So yeah, you don't have a anything. contract to worry about with him. So, you know, in that situation, like, and then people are going to be like, okay, so even if even if that situation doesn't come up, it's still a possibility that it will. And so there there will be people in the locker room thinking about it, talking about it. Um, some of them might be like, you know, I'm late in my career. I don't want that to even be an option. And other people will be like, look, I'm here for three more years. If if we're our ability to win a Super Bowl is dependent on love next year. And let's get him in there now and get him ready. And so there's going to be you create rifts in your locker room when you have situations like that. Um so I just Green Bay has handled it poorly from the beginning. And I don't think Rogers has handled it great, but uh the franchise has handled it poorly from the beginning and it's just a mess. It's just an absolute mess. And I think that you've got a situation that is very problematic for that franchise in a year where they should be either the favorite to go to the Super Bowl or number two, depending on how you view Tampa. Um, But they're not. Do you think that slides a little bit just based on the way that they've approached the last couple Three weeks. Absolutely. I'd put them fourth. Where fifth. do you think Seattle falls into that group? Third. Wow. Really? Yeah. We haven't even talked about this, but that's actually um, a little higher than I would have initially thought from you. Hmm. Interesting. I was thinking fifth. Not for me personally. <laughs> I want them to be a little higher, but realistically, I thought that, that they would be in at least a top five conversation 
for us. Well, but we're just, we're just the talking league about says that they're not even top ten. Well, we're talking about in just the NFC because it's to represent the Super Bowl or represent the NFC and yes, the Super yes, Bowl. Exactly. And so you don't think they're top ten in the NFC? Yeah, I know. Not that's me. The, that's I'm garbage. just saying that other folks. I mean, we're finishing last in the NFC West on a, on a few prominent lists, including Prisco, which I don't agree with the guy, but yeah. nonetheless, that's what they're thinking out there. Prisco is very rarely right about things like that and often True. does says things just to, you know, be confrontational. He's not um, the only one. Though. I know. A lot of, there's a lot of people that do that, that same kind of thing, too. But um, And then there's a lot of people that are just not informed. They just, they they don't recognize the talent um because they don't want to yeah and i think that points to an idea that that we have that there might be an opening for a for a new national show on something like that to talk about different teams and to understand the realities and yeah and- actually there <laughs> there there um there is a there is a, a void out there for a um for a good and national full NFL show with guys attempting to get to the bottom of, of these things and not just fall into the national media narrative. Yeah. We should probably try and fill that. Yeah, I think so. That's a good idea. Announcements to come soon. (laughs) Or we can just talk about it. We've already kind of talked about it. Do you want to? Uh, Sure. Bill and I are, are talking about putting that show together. It'll be a yeah. different. It'll be a slightly different format, shorter shows, um, but we want to we want to expand our horizons to talk about more than just the Seahawks, um, and also expand our knowledge base to be able to talk about more than just the Seahawks. Um, that plus maybe some changes to our own show. Yeah. So uh, we're gonna we're joining a national podcast network. We haven't really kind of announced it yet, but what whatever. We've 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 announced it, but I don't know that it actually was really heard. Um, but we're going to join a, a a new national podcast network for this show, mm-hmm. and we're going to change our format up a little bit. We're going to go from once a week, hour hour and a half, to a three time a week show in shorter uh, episodes, and that'll give us uh, a, a more of an opportunity to look at some some ad revenue and also to be out there more consistently um multiple times a week well and just and and also just for for you guys listening um you don't have to commit to an hour and a half you can um you know commit to commit to your your 30 minute drive home um and and listen to a show so it's a it's a win-win for everybody and then on the national thing um We've also been in discussions with the the podcast group to create a new show that would focus on all 32 teams, but also really focus on prospects and the NFL draft. I think both Keith and I really mm-hmm. like that process. Every time we hit the off season with the Seahawks show, we dive into the NFL draft. So we talk about prospects, position groups in the draft, all that kind of stuff, big boards. It's just a really fun thing for us. And so I think the show, the, the other show would be kind of for us. Um, and hopefully everyone else enjoys it. Like Keith said, we'd open ourselves up to, to other markets as well. And so um, so we're trying to put that together. The initial name of the show is uh, 
NFL draft playbook. And um, we're, we're still tossing that around a little bit, but uh, I think we're leaning in that direction. So yeah. um, we're, we're still in the early planning phases for, yeah. So yeah, we're looking at probably October. Yeah. Don't expect us November. to launch this next week. Yeah. Anyways, that's it, Keith. That's more than it. Let's get out, let's get out of here. <laughs> All right. Find Keith on uh, Twitter at Myers NFL. I am at NWC Hawk. The show. I might even have to change my my Twitter handle. Maybe. Otherwise, I, I'll be a homer. I might have to end up with another just uh, an, another Twitter handle completely. I don't know. Well, also, you're NWC Hawk, but you live in Arizona. Shouldn't you be NWC Hawk? I'm all, all messed up now. No wonder I'm discombobulated as <laughs> a human being. <laughs> Find the show at Hawks Playbook on Twitter. Uh, Seahawksplaybook.com has all of the shows, has all the website stuff. We redeveloped the website um, in the last couple months, and it's fantastic at least i think so and it kind of takes care of itself so i have i rarely even have to get on there anymore and do anything so that's uh that's my thing um so that's it listen to us on all your favorite podcast apps um all over from iheart spotify google Podcasts, etc and find us on our youtube channel as well at seahawks playbook and that's it so until next time keith go hawks Seahawks Playbook Podcast listeners, thanks for joining us for another edition of the show. You can find us on Twitter. Bill is at NWSeahawk. Keith is at Myers NFL. And the show is at Hawks Playbook. You can listen and subscribe to the show at SeahawksPlaybook.com.